0: As we prepare to hear God's word, let us pray for illumination. Holy One, open us to receive you, that in our minds we may know your truth, in our hearts we may feel your presence, in our lives we may grow your love. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke. In the 15th year, of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Capus, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth, and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is God's story for God's people. Thanks be to God.
1: Would you please pray with me? O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. When I was in high school, My choir teacher was very fond of a specific joke that he loved to tell to all the new incoming students. With apologies to my paraphrasing of his comedic talents, it went something like this. There once was a man who died and ascended to the pearly gates of heaven. And upon his arrival, he was greeted by St. Peter himself, who offered to give a tour of the new man's home. Peter took the man through a large, grand set of doors into a great hallway lined with rooms on both sides. And as the two walked down the hallway, Peter pointed to a room on the left and he said, this is the room that contains all the Pentecostals. And the man looked through a small window in the door and he saw people jumping and dancing and praising joyously. And on the other side of the hall, Peter pointed to another room and said, all of the Methodists gather in this room. And the man looked through the door and he saw a group of people holding a book study, chairs in a circle, listening intently to a speaker. The same routine continued as Peter took the man down the hall and pointed out the room for the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Episcopalians. And then Peter turned to the man and motioned that they needed to be very quiet around the corner up ahead, and as the two tiptoed around the corner, there was another door in front of them, and the man peered in the window of the door and saw a group of people sitting silently, hands folded in their laps, staring straight ahead, and the curious man asked in a whisper, Peter, why do we have to be so quiet around this room, and Peter smiled and said, those are the Presbyterians, they think they're all alone up here. My choir teacher would always give me a good wink when he delivered the punchline to this joke. He knew I was a good sport. In the years since, I've heard this joke told different ways, perhaps you have too, with the group of people who think they are all alone up there being different denominations each time. It's always told in good fun. But you know, one thing about this joke never seems to change in all the ways that I have heard it told. The groups of people who occupy the various rooms in heaven, there are always different denominations of the Christian faith. People hearing the joke are almost always members of a Christian denomination. Some of the humor in the story, I suspect, is that there's no real shock for the group that thinks they're up there alone to learn that maybe other Christian denominations might be up there as well. Sure, all of our denominations have different creeds and traditions, but the core tenet of the Christian faith, a belief in Christ as Savior, exists in all denominations. What if, however, this joke were told with a room in heaven that contained Jewish people? What if there were a room for the Hindu people, And the Buddhist people. What if people showed the man a room full of Muslim people when they first walked into the Great Hall? Would the joke still ring with humor to Christians who heard it? Or would it somehow become less funny to some people? How would our room full of Presbyterians react to finding out that not only are we not the only ones up there, but that we shared eternal salvation with people who did not believe that Jesus was the only way in like we did? We have spent this summer at Knox working through a series on understanding our Bible learning about the major themes in Scripture, about who wrote the different books, who they wrote them for, how we might interpret and use these sacred stories in our lives. The twist on this joke might make us ask ourselves, how is it exactly that we view our truth claims of faith versus the truth claims of other faiths? How do we understand Scripture in a pluralistic world? We read Bible verses to our children that say, Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God except through him. We read confessional statements in our Sunday school and in our Sunday services in which we claim belief in a Christ who is the only Son of God. Who died and rose again, who will come to judge the living and the dead. How would we feel, having learned and taught these things, if we found out that others who have no belief in the singular salvation of Jesus Christ were in that room next to us in heaven? What if they were in our room in heaven? In asking this question today, it is not my intent to give you an answer and try to make all of us walk out of here thinking the exact same thing. Something that so many of us treasure about this faith community is that we are not told exactly what to believe. Instead, we read, we pray, we learn. We have conversations in the midst of our God who alone is the Lord of our conscience. Instead, today, I hope to raise some questions and give us some tools so that we can all continue to think about our faith in light of the faiths of others. As we grow, that we might be mindful of our sisters and brothers who are living all around us who are also made in the image of the divine, just like we are. So there is no singular answer to how to view other faiths among Christians. Some of us have a hard time accepting other people's beliefs. Some of us find it easier to make room for others' beliefs without having it affect our own. The Christian church has wrestled with this question, with the the validity of other religions for centuries. Author and theologian Paul Knitter notes, that questions that Christians face when trying to understand our own beliefs in relation to other beliefs constitutes a discipline called theology of religions. Dr. Nitter taught at Xavier University for many years. Some of you might know him. I was lucky enough to take a class with him on theology of religions in seminary just a few summers ago. And the work of Dr. Nitter lays out four models for how most Christians think of other religions. It will serve us well to take some time to learn about these models today. I wonder which position you might find your most personal comfort with. Knitter calls the first model that he identifies the replacement model. In this model, other religions do not hold valid truth claims about salvation. Rather, they will need to have their beliefs replaced by the Christian model of salvation through Jesus Christ. There are nuances to this model about the degree to which replacement needs to happen. Some argue that a total replacement of the other faith will be necessary. Others try to soften the stance a bit, saying that there might be some redeeming things about other religions, but in the end, those faiths will ultimately need to accept Jesus Christ. It's often stated that this need will become a desire of that person once they are exposed to the true love and message of Jesus. This is a very popular model among evangelical and non-denominational faith traditions in our current culture. It's a model that's rooted in a very literal reading of Scripture. Scripture that is central to the understanding of Christianity as a superior religion to others. The upside of this stance, it makes things pretty easy. It makes hard questions black and white, right and wrong. This can be very appealing to those who are seeking succinct, direct answers to questions of faith. These questions are hard, and it's easy when somebody just tells you, this is the right way. That's the end of it. The danger here, of course, is in, in the assertion that we as Christians are privy to the entirety of God's salvation. We alone lay claim to the method of receiving it. It leaves no room for any truth to be found among other religions. And it kind of places a limit on God, doesn't it? Saying that God will not, possibly cannot, save those who don't put their faith in Jesus, puts God in a box. It restricts the claim found in John chapter 3, verse 8, when he writes, The Spirit of God blows wherever it pleases. So that's the first model. The exclusivity of that model led some in the church to propose a second model, which Knitter calls the fulfillment model. This model accepts that God may indeed be present in other religions, sure, but those religions will be enhanced upon exposure to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus will fulfill these other religions, thereby enabling salvation for them. The model does not necessitate that people of other faiths convert to Christianity, but that in their encounter with Jesus, they will be forever changed. Because of their exposure to the gospel, they will become better Muslims or better Hindus or better Buddhists. This model does a better job of making room for truth claims in other religions, but it still does ring with an air of superiority and exclusivity over other faiths. God might indeed be present in your faith, but you still need our faith to find the fulfillment of God's salvation. Critics of this model would, of course, argue to be in community and dialogue with our neighbors of different faiths, it becomes a little less than authentic if we believe ourselves to be on a higher level theologically than they are. And so because of that criticism, there is a third model that is developed. Knitter named this model the mutuality model. The mutuality model tries to establish an even playing field. While believing that people of other religions can be changed by hearing the good news of Jesus, we must be open to the fact that we too can be changed by hearing their stories, by coming in contact with their faith Not only can other religions be fulfilled by Christianity, but perhaps Christianity can be made more full through conversations with other religions. Mutualists remind us that God is universal. Therefore, truth about God can be found all around us. Limiting ourselves to one religion, they would say, to one line of thinking about a universal God, would mean that we miss out on what the Spirit is doing in other places. The image that is often associated with this model is that of a mountain. One mountain that we are all climbing, perhaps on different paths, but still climbing to the top together. Critics of this model are quick to point out that the particularity of God's love, which is incarnate in Jesus, can be lost in this model. That sometimes we can water down Jesus when we remove the singularity of salvation found through Christ. So Knitter names the final model, the acceptance model. This model claims that there are many true religions, and that's just how it is. Revisiting our mountain metaphor, scholars would prefer the acceptance model to point out that it's elitist to think that everybody is climbing the same mountain we are. They would perhaps argue for a more accurate metaphor, which might be many different mountains with many different paths. Theologian Mark Heim describes a Christian mountain that will not be higher than any other mountain, for each will be high enough for those who dwell on it to be fully satisfied. But from the lookout of the Christian mountain, we will be able to see and understand just how the diverse peaks of this heavenly skyline give expression to the diversity of the divine life in all of God's creatures. This model asserts that to really love one's neighbor, we must love their otherness. The concerns expressed over this model would include relativism, just like the mutuality model, possibly the lessening of Jesus Christ. So hearing these four models, I would guess that all of us in this room today find ourselves on a different part of the spectrum between them. Even our denomination as a whole takes a pretty nuanced approach to guiding people on this subject. The official interreligious stance by the Presbyterian Church USA states that PCUSA at all levels will be open to and will seek opportunities to respect dialogue and mutual relationship with entities and persons from other faith traditions. It does this in the faith that the Church of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is a sign and means of God's intention for the wholeness of humankind and all creation. The fact that it states the Church of Jesus Christ is a sign and means and not the sign and means probably is a clue toward how our denomination hopes to point us as a body of faith. After all, if we think about our scriptures, the Bible that we have been studying this summer, for every exclusivist-sounding passage that people hold up, no one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus. Don't we also find passages like our scripture this morning that Kate read from the Gospel of Luke? Prepare the way of the Lord so that all flesh may see God's salvation. That is a quotation from Jewish scripture, by the way. This theological exercise, this intellectual thinking, seems to be a comfortable place for most of us adults here at Knox. We like to read more about the subject. We like to hear discussions about differing viewpoints. We have thoughtful sermons. We have well-crafted adult education presentations. It allows us to wrestle with the questions that are involved. What I find most interesting about this subject, however, is that there is a different level of urgency with our youth when approaching a theology of religions. From my experience with them, this is not a subject that they just want to sit back and reflect upon. This is an urgent topic of critical importance for our young people. This generation of youth has grown up with access to people from all walks of life, from all around the world. They have best friends who are of varying religious backgrounds, sometimes no religious background at all. And for them to see authenticity in the church, for them to allow themselves to think about almost any other subject of their faith, they first need to know, where do we as a church stand on the issue of acceptance for the people that they love? Without a clear answer to this subject, young people find the church elusive at best, disingenuous at worst. When we fail to fully love our neighbors, differences and all, they notice. Isn't this what Jesus himself taught us to do? We have no problem saying that we should love each other, but how do you truly love your neighbor if inside you believe that their core faith tradition is leading them away from the love of the Almighty Creator? It's a hard question to wrestle with. This past week at Knox, we were host for a day to an interreligious group of youth called Kids for Peace. This group seeks to connect youth from different religions and backgrounds and empowers them to be agents of change in the world. I was lucky enough to be with them and to witness and work with them to watch them laugh together and learn together, share their faith traditions together. These kids were Christians. They were Jews. They were Muslim. They were Buddhist. There was a Baha'i student there. I was tasked in my time with them to give a talk about Christianity. What questions did they have about our faith? What experiences did they have with other Christians? As you might guess, their answers were varied. We got a lot of questions about Christmas and Easter. Is Santa in the Bible? What's the deal with that Easter bunny? Some asked what was so special about this table that's found in all of our churches, the table we will gather around together today. As we walked around the building and did a tour, one of the youth asked me why some in our religion are filled with such hatred to people in their religion. It breaks your heart to hear a kid ask that, about a faith tradition that you love, that is supposed to be rooted in love. It was also healing for me to be able to tell that youth I was sorry for their experience, and that that is not at all what Jesus taught us to be like. We still have a lot of learning to do as followers of Christ. As we try to grow by reading our holy scriptures, by praying in ways that are common to our tradition, by meeting together with those who believe like we do, I hope that we can continue to add more time with those who are different from ourselves, who have some experiences of God that we have yet to experience, who will work with us toward common justice and peace in our world, who through their own beliefs will help us to become better Christians ourselves. that we would let go of fear that someone else's faith endangers our own, not that we would give up any of our own beliefs, but that we might understand them more fully. I was reminded of all of this while watching those youth interact this week. May they continue to teach us how to be a true community of our diverse God of love. Thanks be to our Amen.